0: Welcome to today's Amber Shows. I'm so glad to be back. I haven't been on in like a week and a half. Um, I had vertigo. I don't know if you guys know what vertigo is. It's when you get like the spinning. It just comes on all of a sudden. Sometimes they say it's the crystals in your ears. They get imbalanced. Um, So I had it. I was spinning. You get nauseated. It's terrible. It's a horrible feeling. Just imagine drinking a whole bottle of Patron or something. that's how you spin but um i'm back as far as not spinning i'm having some little they call them earthquakes where after the vertigo you still continue to be um lightheaded so i'm still lightheaded um, a little unbalanced but i feel good enough to read a piece of cake by Cupcake Browns, the New York Times bestseller. Brown's confessional memoir is one you can't easily put down. Her life is nothing short of a miracle for all of my listeners who have keep are keeping up with it. So, we're going to do a quick I'm going to do a quick recap. So, uh, Cup is no longer getting social security because she won't go to school. So, she's emancipated, but she's getting social security checks from her mom's death, but she's not getting them because she won't go back to school. And um she has an inheritance that her mom left her, but she can't get that till she turns 18, and she's like um, 17 and a half. Um, her, her father, well, her daddy, what she calls daddy, who raised her uh, until her mom died, uh, she found out when her mom died that he was not actually her real father. Her biological father had never been in her life, had never done anything for her. His name is Mr. Burns. Um, so you'll know when he comes back into the picture, you'll know what I'm referring to. You'll remember just trying to get you to recall uh what's going on. And uh Cup is living with Daddy. Uh he turns out he's a he sells pills. Uh he has three prostitutes living in the house in the in the they live in an apartment building called the complex. And um she has uh there're three he has three prostitutes living there. He's not a pimp. They're just paying him for a room and board. So we're going to start now. I celebrated my 18th birthday in the complex. We had a huge party. Friends bought booze and bought brought dope. Customers bought dope and brought booze. The next day, I didn't have much memory of the party, but I was told it was the bomb. A couple of days later, my uncle Junior and the court did their thing to give me my trust fund money. Uncle Junior was in charge of my and Larry's trust fund money until we turned 18. Mr. Burns our biological father the sperm donor he spoke to, got in touch with Larry when he got his inheritance when he turned 18 and he ended up getting his money uh, bamboozling uh, Larry and Larry is now broke. Uh, So now uh, a couple of days later uh, Junior did this thing and the court gave her her trust fund money so cup has her tr- trust fund money so $25,000 I thought I was rich three days after receiving the check the phone rang no sooner than I'd said hello a voice said "Lavette." I hadn't been called that name in so long the mention of it stopped me in my tracks. In fact, no one was allowed to call me that name. My hand began to tighten around the phone handle as I began to remember how much I hated that name and that the man who and the man who'd given it to me. The voice continued snapping me out of the daze. This is your father. It was Mr. Burns. So how are you? I know this punk-ass nigga ain't calling me, I thought as I stared at the phone in disbelief. I couldn't believe he had the audacity to call me. I hadn't seen or spoken to him since the day he'd given us to Diane. He continued talking about how he missed me and how much trouble he'd had trying to find me, but I wasn't listening. I had too many unanswered questions racing through my mind. How did he get my number? How did he know where I was? How did he know I'd gotten my money? then I remembered that he always showed up when money was involved. I came back to the present. The why and how he found me wasn't important. What was important was that after years of pure hell, I'd finally get the chance to give him a piece of my mind. He'd been talking for about two minutes, going on and on about how he could use a little help and about how he loved his daughter. Love? love i screamed you don't know shit about love you black sorry bastard of a man i never even knew you existed and how did i how did i find out when your sorry ass took us from the only family we loved uncle jr and daddy and and sent us to (laughs) stay excuse me with that sadistic bitch diane and for what so you could split the foster care and social security money you sold out your kids for money you're a punk bitch I was so angry, tears were falling from my eyes, but I couldn't stop. I had to release the rage and hatred. I'd been holding on for it too long. Mr. Burns was shocked into silence by my anger and my language, but I continued. Yeah, I said it. I said you're a sorry ass punk bitch. That's all you are. You might have pulled that I need my kids shit on Larry, but that, ain't, that shit ain't gonna work with me. I don't want you. Or your fake-ass love, you fake-ass nigga. I got a daddy, and it ain't you, motherfucker. I'd rather lay on a bed of scalding, hot, piercing nails naked before I'd acknowledge your sorry ass to be my father. Just the thought of you leaves a shitty taste in my mouth. You know why? Because you ain't shit. You ain't never been part of my life. And, motherfucker, we ain't fitting to start now. Now you listen, and you listen good, asswipe. Don't you ever, and I mean ever, call my house again. You hear me, asshole? And if you ever, ever come anywhere near near me, I'll do what my mama should have done years ago and what Larry should have done when you stole his money. I'll kill you, you black ass. You hear me? I'll fucking kill you dead. I slammed down the phone so hard, and I felt the cradle crack in my hand. Daddy came running into my room. What's all the hollering about, he asked as he threw open my bedroom door. His body crouched as if he were ready to attack. With tears still falling and my body still shaking from the intense anger, I told him what had just happened and how glad I was that I'd finally gotten a chance to give Mr. Burns a piece of my mind. Sounds like you gave him more than a piece, Dad, he joked, grabbing me and giving me a big hug. That's my girl, he said with a big smile. Mr. Burns never called back, and I never heard from him again. And hell, I didn't need Mr. Burns to spend my trust fund money. I could do that by myself just fine. And spend, I did. I wanted my own car. I didn't have a driver's license, but that didn't matter. The gangsters had taught me to drive years before. So I headed to the first Buick dealer, and and I saw a car. A beautiful new Regal. It was two-tone light and dark blue, with a sunroof and spoke and spoke wire rims. It was worth only about 8 thousand dollars but i paid twelve thousand for it why because it was pretty and i wanted it uncle junior tried to tell me it was a bad move but hey it was my money i really wanted that car so i bought it then to prove i could be responsible i got car insurance i also bought clothes jewelry and of course dope i put the rest in a savings account with the intent to touch it only when i needed to The period in the complex was one of the happiest times in my life. All I did was hang out, get high, and sell dope, which I loved, especially since I had a variety of drugs to choose from. I'd be down in the dumps, depressed one moment, and happy and ecstatic the next. I didn't yet realize the horrific physical and mental toll that consistent, constant drug use was taking on my mind and body. Actually, I didn't care. Business was booming. I was legally and physically grown. So foster homes were a thing of the past. I had my own room at Daddy's and a phone. I had little money in the bank and I had my daddy and my Uncle Junior back in my life. Shit, life was good. I wasn't turning tricks during this time at the complex, though I should have been because at least I had been getting paid. I never really had a steady boyfriend unless you consider it my standard relationship span of two months as steady. I met most of the men I dated in nightclubs. My favorite club called the Oasis was, o- was only a half a mile from the complex. It had a reputation for being one of the raunchiest, most violent and happening nightclubs in San Diego. I quickly began to make my rounds there as well as other clubs in the greater San Diego area. Getting in was never a problem because I had a fake ID. Actually, it wasn't fake. It was my legitimate ID, but with an incorrect birth date, a benefit of selling dope. When I lived in my apartment in Chula Vista, one of my customers worked for the DMV. One day she needed some dope but was short on money. I told her I needed to change the date on my ID, but didn't know how to go about it. We agreed to a little business trade. Hey, fair exchange ain't no robbery. Thanks to that deal, I had an official California ID that listed my age as 21. Even though my purpose for going to clubs was to party, I always started the party way before I got there. I mean, I had to drink and smoke reefer and toot while getting dressed then I had to stop and get something to drink on the way to the club, even though the furthest club wasn't 10 minutes away. And of course, I couldn't go into the club without smoking another joint or tooting another line. By the time I actually got into the club, I'd be fucked up. Still, I would drink another four to six drinks. I was a mean drunk. I liked to pick fights, talk about folks' mamas, and just talk shit. For example, one night I went up to this big muscular guy standing up against the wall. I had to jump up to get in his face because I was drunk. Each jump landed up me stumbling. That didn't deter me. I continued to talk about him and his ugly-ass mama. At first he tried to ignore me, but with each insult, not to mention my drunk bad breath, he was quickly losing patience. He balled up his fists. That enraged me more. You think you're going to hit me, motherfucker, I yelled. The anger in his eyes told me he was. Lucky for me, a lot of my customers and friends, which were really one of the same, partied in the same clubs. Realizing I wasn't ready to get my ass whooped, they ran over, stepped in between me and the guy, remorsefully apologizing for my behavior and making a story about about me being distraught from a recent tragedy. Seeing he was falling for their excuse, they grabbed me by the arm, dragged me away, while trying to cover my mouth, which continued to curse him out as, at the top of my lungs. My friends comically began to call the save cup's ass incidents, since they'd prevented me from getting seriously hurt on many occasions. Each time they saved me, I'd reward them with free dope. I'd laugh with them as they would replay the story to me as, on the next day, though I usually had no memory of it. I was experiencing blackouts before more and more. I would sit in total astonishment as my friends would tell me about the stupid things I'd done or said the night before. However, I soon realized a benefit from from and even began to welcome the memory loss because it allowed me to remain oblivious to the extremely ignorant and hostile person I became when I was drunk. My blackouts also had a negative effect. My friends began to realize that since I had no idea what really had happened the night before, they could tell me they'd helped me when they really hadn't. Pretty soon, I was frequently and regularly rewarding people with free dope, believing they'd protected me or saved me from a serious ass-whooping, when a lot of times they hadn't even been in the club. Of course, I partied so much that there, was simp- there were times when there wasn't a customer around to come to my rescue. I remember one guy was so pissed and tired of my relentless babbling, he shoved my head into the wall with such force that I was actually knocked out for a few moments. I came to with a small bloody knot on my head and my head imprint on the wall. Then, of course, there were times when I just got my ass whooped because my mouth had written a check. My ass couldn't check cash. One day, Daddy was in the kitchen frying some chicken. The smell woke me up and made me nauseous. I had to run to the bathroom to throw up. I knew what that meant. Problem was, I had no clue as to who the baby's father was. Nor did I try to figure out which of my last three boyfriends it belonged to. Didn't matter. I knew I wasn't going to keep it. I looked through the phone book, located an abortion clinic, and scheduled an appointment for that afternoon. After tooting a couple of lines of meth, popping a yellow jacket, and drinking some bourbon, I drove to the clinic. Once I had given the receptionist my name and been instructed to sit down, I looked around the room, which was filled with young girls, some were crying, some disinterestedly flipping through magazines, others just sat and stared off as objects, only they were seemed to be able to only they were able to see. I was examined by a doctor and after making me and after making me piss into a small, clear plastic cup was told what I already knew. I was three months pregnant. I was so pissed off at myself. How could I have let this happen again? I didn't bother answering that question. The how was unimportant. What was important is that I get rid of the pregnancy, so I made the necessary arrangements to do so. Three days later, I popped two lewds, three black beauties, smoked a joint, drank four beers, and then drove to the clinic and had the abortion. An hour and a half later, I was home tooting coke, popping pills, and drinking seagram seven and seven up. Soon I didn't have to think, I didn't have to feel, I didn't have to remember. As usual, the money I made from dope business became insufficient because I was using it up faster than I could sell it. I needed a scam, but wanting something where I wouldn't have to risk going to jail. Being able to stay out of jail helped me convince myself that my using and slanging were relatively harmless and just recreational. One day, while watching the news, I got an idea. The story was about some study that had proven that sales clerks and store security personnel were more likely to watch minorities, specifically blacks and Mexicans, in their stores than they were white people. I'd finally found an advantage to being not only black, but dark black. But first, I need a white girl. I knew that Slim and the other hoes wouldn't do. They were too old. I needed a white girl around my age. I jumped up and ran into the living room and told Slim what kind of girl I was looking for. A few days later, she introduced me to a young white hoe named Dot. Slim and Dot knew each other because they sometimes worked the same corner. Dot was eighteen years old, thin but pretty. She was dirty and scraggly, but once showered, shampooed, and cleaned up, I figured she'd do for my purposes just fine. This is how you scam. Work. This is how the scam worked. First, I, I, and five or six black girlfriends would dress as ghetto as possible—dirty jeans, khaki pants, dirty shirts hanging over our pants. Though none of my doper friends banged, and I'd long since quit, I had everyone wear blue rags to give a more suspicious and sinister effect. The cursing and low talking in a mob would enter the store. As soon as we came in the door, we could see the fear and suspicion in the clerk's eyes. We could feel the security guards' entire bodies jump to attention and tense up as we passed by. Once we were sure we had everyone's attention, we slowly began to walk around the store, lifting items to view and show them to each other, loudly the prices to each other or hold up pieces of clothing to our bodies as if trying to size them up. Moments after we entered the store, Dot would come in Cleaned, showered, neatly dressed, and looking like the perfect little white citizen. By the time Dot walked in, the clerks and security were so focused on me and my crew, they never even noticed her. We continued to walk around, touch and compare items we liked. The clerk and security guards were intensely watching us and following us around. They didn't bother trying to be inconspicuous about the fact that they had us under heavy surveillance and they knew that we knew they were watching us. What they didn't know was that while they were watching us, so convinced that we were up to something, Dot was robbing them blind. She'd be stuffing clothes into her pants, her shirt under her hat, in her underwear, anywhere they would fit. Hell, one time she stuck gloves, earrings, and change purse into her shoes and she wasn't even trying to be sly about it. She didn't have to be. Everyone was so afraid of what my menacing little black crew were doing that no one was paying attention to her. Once Dot couldn't get anything else into her hiding places, she'd calmly and slowly walk out the store. We'd wait a moment to allow her to get far enough away, and then we'd scroll out. Just as loud and as ghetto and we'd come, as we had come in, the security and sales clerks were always thrilled to see us go patting themselves on the back and giving each other high fives for having failed another shoplifter scheme. We'd all met around the corner. Then together we didn't trust each other to do it separately. We'd sell the loot to the coke man, the pawn shop, neighbors, people on the corner, or whoever would buy it, and split the money. We always got a good payoff because Dot Stole only nice stuff that was always easy to sell. Designer jeans and tops, cute little earrings, bracelets and necklaces, lovely picture frames, scarves, gloves, small purses, etc. Dot never thought about trying to ditch us once, leaving the the store with the loot. She knew we'd crack her down and whip her ass. Actually, I soon came to realize that Doc was excellent for this part of my scam because the person playing the white girl couldn't be afraid. She had to evade, elude confidence and superiority. She had to be convinced of the fact that as the white person, she was the good one, the safe one, the trustworthy one. If this attitude was not sufficiently projected, the store personnel would pick up on her anxiety and nervousness, but not with Dot. She was smooth. Although she was always around a bunch of black folks, she wasn't bothered by her white skin, which she used to use as her advantage, and in this case, ours. We never worked the same store within the same month, and out of the 25 or 30 times we did it, we were never caught. Of course we weren't doing anything but being ourselves. Nor was Dot ever caught when she worked with us. This scam would work every time. In fact, we would probably have continued it much longer than the few months we did, except Dot was greedy and cocky. She didn't believe us when we told her that the only reason she was able to get away with stealing like she did was because we were the diversion. Dot got greedy and cocky. She didn't believe us. So Dot actually thought she was good at stealing and figured that without us, She could keep all the loot money herself, so one day she tried to run the scam solo. She went to a leather store and thought she was leaving with several pair of leather pants, a leather jacket, purse, and gloves. She was busted before she even hit the door. I never found a white girl smooth enough to replace Dot. So because of her greed, one one of the greatest scams I'd ever created came to a crashing sudden halt. That was all right being the hustler I was sooner or later I'd find another way After less than a year at the complex daddy said he wanted out He said he was tired of the business the hose the constant traffic and the lifestyle When daddy told me about his plans I wasn't really shocked I knew he had been unhappy for quite a while The complex atmosphere was completely out of his element It was too hard too constantly to be to be constantly drunk have hoes around drug users when you weren't a drunk hoe or a druggie. He said Lori had been caught and inviting him to give her the opportunity to try to make the relationship with him again, and he was finally decided that he would take her up on it. So Daddy would be moving up to a new house with Laurie and Kelly. He quickly added that I was welcome to come. He pointed out the fact that I didn't make enough from my business to live on my own, which meant I couldn't afford to stay in the apartment by myself without quickly going through what was left of my trust fund money. He added that, more important, I needed a change of scenery. I didn't really have any other choice. Daddy was right. I couldn't afford to stay there by myself, especially since I'd long been doing more dope than I was selling. And maybe a change of scenery would help me get myself together. I told Daddy I'd go with him. Our customers were sad to see us go. We always had good dope. Our neighbors were also sad to see us go. We always looked out for them and gladly shared our party favors. Our landlord was sad sad to see us go, particularly since we were among the few tenants who consistently paid rent on time. The hoes were sort of sorry to see us go, especially since Daddy was the only business partner they'd ever had that didn't take their money. On the other hand, they were used to moving around. It came with the memory, with the territory. Daddy and I packed up and left the complex. We left the events and... Memories of the complex at the complex. No one outside of customers ever knew what went on there until now. Lori took Daddy back without question. She really loved him and was glad to have him back. She said she didn't care what he'd done, what he, where he had gone. He and Lori rented a three-bedroom house in Skyline, an area east of San Diego. It was a nice house with lots of large windows and a big front yard. Even though we no longer sold drugs, that didn't mean I couldn't sell them or use them. Hell, quitting drugs was never even considered. Wherever I went, the party came with me. I always found the party animals. Skyline was no different. Since I'd returned to the San Diego area, Kelly and I would talk periodically, but we never really got close like we had been before my mother died. But that changed when we started living together in Skyline. Kelly also smoked weed and drank. So we quickly became inseparable party buddies. And as usual... Laurie took care of Kelly's baby, Jason, so Kelly's motherhood never got in the way of our partying. We'd hear about a party that was happening at someone's house, and we'd just show up, not knowing a soul there and not having been invited. We didn't care. We'd walk in, smiling and blowing kisses and at people, waving at the crowd as we were grand marshals on top of a beautifully decorated parade float, stopping to chit-chat with everyone. Besides crashing parties, another one of our favorite things to do was to have midnight toga parties at the beach. We'd invite 15 or 20 of our friends, bring along plenty of dope and booze, and build a huge bonfire. The rules were simple. You had to drink, smoke, and snort, and wear a sheet draped around your body like a toga. At first, most of the men balked at the last requirement. But once they were completely smashed and wobbly from following the first three rules, they'd sloppily and drunkenly throw on a sheet more times with nothing on underneath. Then we'd spend hours dancing around the bonfire while at the top of our lungs screaming Toga, toga, toga. It was a stupid thing to do, but I loved it. It was at one of these toga parties that a victor, a good friend and regular partier, talked to me about my drug use. He insinuated that I might have a problem with drugs. Me? A problem with drugs? Shit. Only problem I got is where I ain't when I ain't got any money. I chuckled at my own joke. Damn, I was so funny. Victor was looking at me oddly like he was trying to figure out whether I was chuckling or choking. I figured I should at least try to be serious. What makes you think I have a drug problem, I asked. Now that I realized he was serious, I was insulted. He'd suggested such a thing. Well, you don't go to school or work. In fact, you don't do shit. All you do is drink, drug, and party. He looked at me disgustedly, took a swig of Schlitz malt liquor, and staggered over to the bonfire to join the toka chanting. I sat there and I thought about what he said. So that's it. All I got to do is be able to drink and use and not worry about folks thinking I got a problem is get a job or go to school. I could do that. I'd already tried working. It sucked, but I hadn't really tried school. The following Monday, I set out to find school. As I was flipping through the yellow pages looking for one, Kelly approached and asked me what I was doing. I proudly informed her I was going back to school. At first, she didn't say anything. She just stared at me, obviously perplexed. I ignored her and went back to looking. She stood there staring a few moments more. Finally, she turned and walked away. I found a vocational school that offered a certificate in six months. That sounded good to me because six months was about all of the education I could stomach. At first, Kelly had no, intent in attend- no interest in attending. Then she found out we would get $5,000 in student loans. Suddenly she got a yearning to do some learning. Kelly signed up for the legal secretary program. I signed up for medical assistant. I figured they'd need someone like me to watch over the medicines but i soon found out that before they'd let me handle meds they wanted me to learn some medical technology and biology problem was i hated biology and couldn't remember any of the medical terms there there were ways too many names of body parts bones and shit held to me hell to me a finger was a finger but they wanted you to know all the different bones and veins in the damn thing After miserably failing my first vocabulary test, I didn't get any answer correct. I approached the counselor about changing programs. He took one look at my exam and agreed. He suggested I join Kelly in the legal secretary program. It was an excellent suggestion. For some reason, the legal terms just came naturally to me. I could study the words the night before an exam while smoking a joint and having a drink and still do well enough to pass with a C or D plus. Kelly, on the other hand, hated it all. She hated the legal terminology, and she couldn't get the shorthand. The only thing she did like about school was that Daddy and Lori kept Jason so that she could attend classes. So she hung in there, at least till she got her student loan check. Once the check cleared, Kelly's schedule changed, though she never told Daddy and Lori because she knew once they found out she'd quit she'd have to stay at home with her son, Jason. So she got up every morning as though she were going to school and rode across town and pretended she was going to school. But she'd just sit in my car, smoke weed, and sleep while I went to class. I, on the other hand, actually enjoyed school, especially since there was no math or biology required. In fact, the hardest class I had to take was shorthand, which I loved it it came natural to me and soon became the perfect tweak for a speed freak like me tweaking is what speed freaks do to keep their hands and body moving while high on speed speed is an upper that changes you with such an incredible amount that charges you with such an incredible amount of energy that you have to do something with it or you'll go crazy as a result everyone on speed twerks in one way or another there are numerous ways of tweaking so long as the person is keeping her hands busy and moving quickly. Some people go on cleaning frenzies. They'll clean everything in the house twice. Since I had hated cleaning, this was never an option for me. Some people play cards, musical instruments, or anything else that can keep their hands occupied. I soon discovered that shorthand was an excellent way to tweak, even when I wasn't in class. I would sit in front of the TV and take down the news. Sometimes I'd just sit with Kelly and other partiers and take down their conversations. They thought I was nuts. What none of us knew was that by practicing shorthand that often and that much, I was quickly empowering my skills and speed. Within three months, I was taking shorthand in 70 words per minute. My regular snorting of meth and coke also provided plenty of energy to stay up for days at a time. And it really gave me an extra umph" mm. I needed to study that night before an exam. I was soon impressed with the fact that I was able to go to school, take shorthand faster than anyone else in my class, maintain a d plus average and still party. No drug problems here. Three months later, I started I felt like I proved my point and was getting a little sick of getting up every morning to go out and gather and gather up a bunch of useless skills. so I decided I needed to quit but without looking as though I was quitting. It was a tricky problem, but it was I was up for it. The following week, I ditched class with Kelly. We were sitting in my car at the corner liquor store smoking a joint. I was bitching about my diploma when I noticed Sarah walked into the store. Sarah was a young black girl who I worked with in my school record department, she was a pretty girl who prided herself on the fact that she was able to work and maintain her get high. I understood this pride. A few minutes later, she walked out carrying a brown paper bag which held the easily recognizable shape of a forty-ounce. She looked up and saw us. She immediately skipped over to the car and bent down to peer through the op- my open window. Mmm, smells good in here. She hinted with a big smile. I wasn't. Troubled about Sarah knowing that I got high. I knew she was cool because I we'd partied together before Girl get in I said giving her a big grin while opening the door and lean, leaning my seat forward so she could crawl into the back Kelly handed her the joint she handed Kelly the 40 she just bought Kelly opened it took a long swig Sarah took a long hit off the joint is somebody gonna give me something I snapped Hell, in my own car and I wasn't smoking or drinking anything. They laughed as they simultaneously shoved the bottle and joint at me. After taking a swig and a hit, I continued my bitching about how sick and tired I was of the whole school thing. Sarah listened for a moment, then she leaned forward. How sick of it are you? Very sick, I snapped. Haven't she been listening at a fucking word I've been saying? Well, if it's words if it's worth your money I can make it worth your while she stated quietly she had my attention now she said that for $100 cash she could update my records to reflect I'd completed all of the required courses making me eligible for my certificate and graduation no should I ask unsure if she was joking or not. No shit, she replied. Later that night, as I lay in bed, smoking a joint and drinking gin and orange juice, I thought about Sarah's offer. Should I take the easy way out for once in my life, or should I try to actually learn something, earn something, finish something? Two weeks later, I graduated. To me, that meant I'd finished something. Didn't matter that I'd paid $100 for it. Fair exchange ain't no robbery, right? I didn't remember one legal term, but my last shorthand shorthand exam had been timed at 70 words per minute. To me, that meant I had learned something. I still hadn't earned anything, but hell, I figured two out of three wasn't bad. Daddy was so proud of me, he bragged to all of his friends that not only did I graduate, but I'd done it in three and a half months instead of the normal six. The downside is that when I graduated, and Kelly didn't, Kelly was forced to come clean about dropping out of school. Daddy was furious that she'd lied and taken advantage of them. He swore he and Lori would never watch Jason again. I didn't show up for the graduation ceremony. I never even went and got my certificate. I didn't do it for the certificate. I did it to prove to myself and others and I, that I didn't have a problem with drugs. Because drug addicts don't go to school, right? My nineteenth birthday was coming up, and I wanted to have a party. I was a college graduate, and I'd proven I didn't have a drug problem. Who wouldn't want to celebrate? I made a list of things to do. First, I needed a party place. The house next door was being rented by two single black guys, Gregory and Brent. We'd become friends because they had a nice, huge den that we often partied in. I approached Greg about using his house to throw myself a party. I told him I'd provide the booze, the dope, and the DJ always down for a party he agreed now that i had a party place i needed party people the problem was i really didn't have any friends not real ones and although i had people who were always willing to drink and drug with me there were only a few i wanted a huge party i wanted to surround myself with lots of people i wanted a throng to come celebrate me i decided to make flyers publicizing my party i printed 300 flyers Announcing the date, time, and location, and in extra-large letters, I put that there'd be plenty of free booze. I placed the flyers everywhere, stuck them under the windshield wipers of cars and grocery store parking lots, nailed them on trees, and taped them on the front counters of liquor stores. I continued with my checklist. I'd taken care of the party place and party people. Next, I needed party favors, booze, and lots of it. I knew just where to go. Kelly... A couple of her friends and I took a trip across the border to Tijuana, Mexico, where booze was very cheap. In fact, the only time I went to, T- to TJ was to buy booze because there I got a fifth of booze for what a half pint would cost in San Diego. Legally, you were only allowed to bring two bottles of booze per person back across the Tijuana border, but being the hustler I was, I had a plan. When the the Border Patrol approached the car and asked if we were bringing anything back into America, I made sure each of the other five people in the car held up two bottles. Seeing that we had 12 bottles in the car, he seemed satisfied that that would be enough booze for anyone to bring back. He waved us through with no idea that we had another 20 bottles hidden in the trunk. Rum, vodka, gin, brandy, scotch, tequila, bourbon, whiskey, and cognac. I didn't stop buying liquor until I ran out of money. I now had all the necessities for a great party. I just hoped someone would show up for it. In street life you knew the reliability of your friends was definitely proportionately on your supply of alcohol or drugs. Hopefully the parties of the of the city the parties of the city wouldn't let me down. The big night finally arrived. I wanted to wear my favorite color, so I bought a sexy little purple dress to wear. Pair it with my significant five-inch heels. I was just too cute for the occasion. As usual, I started drinking way before the party officially started. I had a rum and Coke, was getting dressed. Then I had a vodka and orange juice as I helped Greg and Brent set up chairs. I enjoyed a gin and tonic with the DJ as he set up his equipment. I had another rum and Coke as I sat around nervously waiting for people to arrive. The flyer said the party started at 9 o'clock, but I knew people wouldn't start coming until nine thirty or 10. Finally, they started filtering in. It didn't bother me that I had to go around and inform people that I was the reason for the party. I wasn't insulted that I had to constantly announce to people that it, I was the birthday girl. Nor did their blasé, uninterested responses bother me. Some mumbled a half-assed, happy birthday. Others casually carelessly looked at me and said, That's nice. Where's the bar? But I didn't care whether they knew it or not. They were there for me. I partied hard. For the first two and a half hours, then I passed out. I tried to hang, but I couldn't. By 11.30, an hour and a half after the party really got started, I had three rum and cokes, three gins and tonics, four vodkas and orange juice, three whiskey shots, two brandies, and I think two cognacs. I was in a blackout after the second whiskey shot. All I knew was that one minute I was dancing on the coffee table with myself, with Greg, Brent, and and some others trying to coax me down, and the next I was lying on Greg's bathroom floor, vomiting up what I had sure was my intestines. After I barfed a couple of times, Greg came in, picked me up off the floor, and in the vomit that streamed down the front of my once pretty purple dress, uh, as a result of me missing my toilet a few times and laid me down in the bed. He was heading for the door when I rose my head and slurred out to him, Stop twirling the goddamn room. He glanced back at me, gave a little chuckle, and ducked back into the party crowd. I lay there assessing my situation. I felt like shit. I smelled like shit. And I was sure I looked like shit. So gladly, I welcomed complete, utter, drunken unconsciousness. Okay, that's it. You see what happened to Cup now. Oh my goodness, she just can't seem to get herself together. What is it going to take to get her together? Come back to the Amber Shows. I will be back this week, preferably tomorrow or Tuesday, to continue reading A Piece of Cake, the heart-wrenching, uplifting tale of a woman named Cupcake. Bye, you guys. Thank you for coming to the Amber Shows.